Exodus 17, verses 1 through 6. Water from a rock. Water from a rock. And it says in chapter 17, verse 1 of Exodus. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. After their journeys, according to the commandments of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you chide me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses. They said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock from thirst? And Moses in verse 4 cried out unto the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you the elders of Israel. Take with you your rod. The rod that you used to part the Red Sea. Take it in your hand and go. And behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. I heard the story about a little boy who called the telephone operator looking for a telephone number. But because the little boy had speech problems and he stuttered and he stammered, the operator couldn't understand the word he was saying. Frustrated by the operator's inability to understand his request for a telephone number, the little boy called the operator a dummy and hung up on her. Well, his mother heard all of that, and she scolded the little fellow. She disciplined the little fellow. And she said, you're going to call that operator and apologize to her for what you said. Well, he did. But after his mother left to go outside, he recalled that operator. And he said, I've got something to say to you. You're still a dummy. Well, people in leadership roles understand the operator's frustrations and how she must have felt being called a dummy by that little boy. You try to help somebody and all you get from is grumbling and grizzling and griping. Moses is the leader of the Israelites. And along this journey that's going to take them from Egypt to the Jordan River to cross the promised land, all Moses seems to get from these people that he loves and labors for and leads 
is criticism, carping, cussing, and complaining. As we look at Exodus chapter 17, we once again see the Israelites that he's leading have a great lack of faith. They don't have a deep faith, they have a shallow faith. And that shallow faith has led them to a place once again where they feel it's necessary to unload on Moses. In verse 2, if you look at your Bible, you notice that they chide Moses. That word chide means to argue with someone by calling them names. It's not an argument based on the merit of the facts. It's an argument that quickly degenerates into name calling. And the children of Israel deemed it necessary to chide Moses, in other words, to demean his person, to demean his leadership by calling him names. If that's not bad enough, they murmur against him in verse 3. You notice that word murmurs there. It means to spread malicious allegations and accusations against someone for the purpose of undermining them. So not only are they calling Moses' names, derogatory names to demean his person and his leadership, they're murmuring against him to undermine him, to undermine his leadership. And they're doing it with allegations and accusations that are totally erroneous, but nevertheless given. Can you imagine people doing that, Baptist folks? Can I tell you that some that was doing it to Moses in that day, their cousins are alive today. And sometimes they sit in Sunday school groups, Sometimes they sit in deacon boards. Sometimes they sit in pastoral staff. Sometimes they are the pastor himself. The problem with the Israelites was over water. Or should I say the lack of it. What are they saying to Moses with their chiding and their murmuring? Moses, you're a dummy. You have brought us out of Egypt to die in this desert. When we were in Egypt, we had plenty of water to drink. Now that we're following you out in this desert, we haven't had our fill of water in a long time. Our tongues are parched, we're dehydrated, we're dying of thirst, and so is our livestock. Moses, if you don't take us back to Egypt, we're going to get and we'll go back on our own. We would rather be slaves to Pharaoh than corpses in the desert. Now the question you and I might have, and it's a million dollar question by the way, how is Moses going to respond? If you're a leader in this church, if you're a leader anywhere, I would suggest you listen very carefully how Moses is going to deal with his critics, his complainers, his carpers, 
those who would seek to demean him as a person, demean his leadership, even overthrow him and replace him with somebody else. What's Moses do? What would you do? What would I do? First of all, I want you to notice in verse 1, he does some reaffirmation. Look at verse 1. All of the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord. Now notice that. Why are they at where they're at? Because of the commandment of the Lord. It was the Lord who told them to, to pitch their tents in Rephidim. And when they got there, there was no water for the people to drink. Whenever you face criticisms or complaints or grizzling or griping or accusations or allegations, I think you're a wise person if you pause a moment and dismiss the reasons for what's being said against you and ask yourself the question, no matter what the reasons and motives are for what's being said against me, is what's being said Valid. Is it a valid criticism? Is it a valid complaint? Is it a valid grizzling and griping? Do these people, whatever their motive is, good or bad, right or wrong, righteous or evil, do they have a point that needs to be taken? It's called re-examination, reaffirmation. And I think Moses pauses here for a second to do that. I think he asks himself the question, am I truly God's call leader of these people? Am I truly called of God to lead these people? Is this something I just chose to do? Or did God call me to do it? Am I God's call man or is Aaron or is Joshua or is my sister Miriam or is Korah and any others that call themselves leaders? Am I God's call leader? And when Moses thought through that, he absolutely knew the answer was yes. I didn't sign up for this. In fact, I didn't want to do it. I made excuse after excuse after excuse to God why I couldn't do any of this. And God took my excuses away. He said, don't you worry about your inability. Just think about my ability. So Moses understands he is God's called man to lead these people. He also understands something else as he does some affirmation. I was called by God to lead these people here. I didn't come up with the itinerary of where we're going. I didn't make the map. I didn't make the blueprint. I didn't go somewhere and buy it. I wasn't given it by somebody else. The journey that we're on, that God has called me to lead these people unto, God gave me the journey. God gave me the map. God gave me the blueprint. God said, this is the way you're going to go. 
Is it the long way? It sure is. Is it the most difficult way? It sure is. Is it the way normally somebody would go? No, it's not. But God said this is the way. So I am God's man. And we are at Rephidim, where there's absolutely no water to drink. Because God wants us here. You see, he's thinking, as we should be thinking. Am I God's man or woman? Did God call me to this? If he did, is God leading me in this direction? Is this my leadership or is this God's leadership? Are we at where we're at because of me or because of God? When Moses affirms that he's God's called man, when Moses affirmed that that they're at Rephidim because God wants them there, then Moses is able to do something else. If there's no water, God brought us here to do something. God knew there's no water here. Why did God bring us here? Because God wants to show us something that will build our faith and grow us as a people. This need that we have for water is God-made and God-purposed. You see, you've got to know who you are. You've got to have confidence where you lead. You've got to know when you get there that God is up to something that He may not have told you yet, but God is going to do something. Leadership is about knowing who you are. It's about knowing where you're going and believing that when you get there, God has a purpose and plan in mind for it. And it's this confidence, it's this affirmation, ladies and gentlemen, that keeps you staying the course when the boo birds and the cackling buzzards are after you. Listen to this. I know who I am. And I know what my purpose is. It is clear and it's of epic proportion. It's to defeat Nazi Germany. In this endeavor... Britain shall rise in victory or fall in defeat. But we will not surrender or retreat. The less of mind and heart may rail against us, but may the passing of time silence them and our victory shame them. You know whose words those are? The words of one of the greatest statesmen that has ever lived. Winston Churchill. I don't know if he was a Christian man, but he certainly understood Christian principles in his leadership. And because he knew that he was God's appointed man for that period of time in England, because he knew God's leadership was involved in what was shaping up to be called the Battle of Britain, because he had critics 
cowards as he called them, compromisers, blasting him for everything he did. How could he go the course? How could he change history for Western Europe? How could he defeat Nazi Germany? Because he believed in who he was and where he was at and what God was going to do. Reaffirmation. Moses had to reaffirm himself. And that takes a little bit of thought sometimes. And then in verse 4, Moses did something else, leaders. He prayed. In verse 4, do you notice what it says? He cried out unto the Lord. He didn't argue, he didn't debate, he didn't engage, he didn't confront, he didn't lash out, he didn't verbally touche with his critics. He didn't talk to them. They talked to him, but he didn't talk to them. You know who he talked to? He talked to God. Leadership needs to know how to go straight to the top. And Moses was in touch with God. And God was in touch with Moses. As we said last week, Moses was one of the few men in biblical history whom God spoke to directly. God didn't send a third party. God didn't use a vision. God didn't use a dream. God didn't send a Western Union boy with a signed letter. When God had something to say to Moses, he said it to Moses directly. Moses, when he had something to say to God, he spoke to God directly. And God was asked by Moses to intervene. Moses said, Lord, I'm tired of these critics. I'm tired of these complainers. I'm tired of these carpers. I'm tired of these cussers. I'm tired of an unappreciative people who every time they don't get what they want, they want to get rid of me. Lord, I don't want to deal with them no more. And God said, son, settle down. You don't have to deal with them. You see, what prayer is, ladies and gentlemen, it's inviting God to come into what we're facing. It's inviting God to deal with opposition. It's inviting God to deal with obstacles. It's keeping our hands clean of dirt and blood. We stay up on the mountain praying, and God does the fighting. Too many leaders want to come down and engage people. You might beat me, but you'll beat me on top of the mountain. And you might knock me down, but you're going to knock me down off my knees. Because I'm going to be calling on the Lord. Godly leaders call upon the Lord. And we invite the omniscience and omnipotence of a living God. To deal with those things that we cannot deal with and we should not deal with. Moses also did something else in regard to this challenge. He not only reaffirmed who he was and where he was at and what God was about to do in him and through him by putting him there. He not only prayed, but lastly I want you to see he obeyed. Look at verse 5 and 6. Once again, God asked Moses to do something that's a head-scratcher. In fact, most of the time when God asks us to do something, it's a 
head scratcher. Notice if you read those two verses as I'm talking, that God says to Moses, I want you to get the staff. That staff that is authoritative. That staff that has power because I put power into it. I want you to get that staff. I want you to get the elders of Israel with you. Get the leadership team with you. And I want you to go to a certain rock. And I want you to take that staff before the leaders, before the people. I want you to take that staff, that same staff that you parted the Red Sea with. And I want you to strike that rock. Smitten that rock. And when you do, water will start to come out of it. If I told you that God wants you to go outside, and we got a rock out there, and I want you to hit it with your cane or hit it with a stick we're going to give you, and it's going to turn into a a, a fountain of water, would you believe me? You see, the pastor, he's on night will today. He's getting old. His marble bag's missing a few marbles. His elevator's not going to the top floor anymore. He's missing a few cards in his deck. Now, everybody knows that you can't strike a rock and you You can't get water out of a rock anymore than you get orange juice out of a doorknob. And yet God says to Moses, we're going to quiet the critics. We're going to shame the complainers. Strike the rock. I mean, can't you imagine when he says that to Moses, there's people who may have overheard that going, I mean, there's some snickering going on. There's some laughing going on. I mean, after all, that's like saying to a shepherd boy, go out and fight a human tank. That's like saying to a marching band, go march around the city and bring the walls of that city down. That's like saying to one tired prophet, go out and take on 850 demonized prophets of Baal and see what you can do with them. That's like telling one angel of the Lord to sweep through the Assyrian army and take care of 185,000 soldiers in 24 hours. I mean, that's kind of silly, isn't it, folks? Isn't it? Not for God. God takes the foolish things of this world and uses them to confound the big shots who think they're smart. You say, what translation is that? The Jim Palmer Amplified Version. God is a God of the impossible. What he was telling Moses to do is no different than what God said to David and Joshua and Elijah. What God said through the angel of the Lord. God will always validate his leadership with a display that only God can do. 
So Moses reaffirmed who he was. He prayed. That was important. And then he obeyed. He just simply did what God said to him. Now, I would be remiss if I just stopped the story here, so I'm going to carry it on just a tad, if you'll allow me to. I want to talk a little bit about that rock. Because this is not just a message about Moses' leadership and why he was able to stay the course with the people that did nothing but bellyache all the time. But it's also a story about a rock. A rock that is a picture of something else. You know, many times in the Old Testament, when you look at a person, place, thing, or event, it has a twofold meaning. It has a meaning of what's taking place right then and right there. But it also has a future meaning. It's symbolic of something that's going to come. Every truth in the New Testament is revealed in the Old Testament. So let's talk about that rock just a moment. That rock that God told Moses to hit with that staff. To hit only once. Listen to me. To hit only once and to never hit again. And that rock will then produce water. Living water. That will save the lives of the people of Israel. Though they deserve it not, it will save them. Who is this rock? This rock is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, you're pretty smart to know that. I'm not telling you what I know because I thought it up. Or I read about it. Or somebody told me. I know the Lord Jesus Christ is the rock. Because the word of God says so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 1 through 4. Write it down. Read it later. 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 1 through 4. The great apostle Paul. Talks about this event. And in this discussion with the church at Corinth, the saints there, he says, this rock found in Exodus 17, the story of this rock told in Exodus 17, this rock is Christ. That's what he says. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not just thunking this up either. He said, that's not a word, Pastor, and it is tonight. This rock is Jesus. Secondly, this rock is to be smitten by Moses. And doing so, water will come out. And those people that are dry and parched and dying will receive life. Smitten. Moses, smite the rock. Have you heard?
context have you heard it in before? Maybe it was in Isaiah 53 when the great prophet of God looking ahead with telescopic vision to a place called Calvary where the Son of the living God would be suspended between heaven and earth outstretched to die for the sins of the world would be smitten by God himself in payment for our sins. When Moses smited that rock one time and one time only, he was giving us a picture right there. When God the Father would smite his own son for the transgressions of you and I, a bellyaching, complaining, criticizing, carping, cussing people who probably deserve to die but would get life. That rock, when it was smitten by Moses, a picture of the Father smiting the Son on a cross at Calvary, that smiting would produce living water. When Moses smote that rock, immediately that rock turned into a fountain of water. And the Israelites who were dry and parched would drink of that water and they wouldn't die in the desert, they would have life. Is it just accidental and coincidental? Is it just incidental that when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for something to drink. Because what I will give you is living water. You're dry and you're parched from living in a sinful world and you're a sinner yourself. You don't deserve anything, but God in his love wants you to drink of this water. If you will come and drink, you'll never thirst again. Wow. And remember, in closing, about the rock. The rock is a picture of Jesus. The smiting of the rock by Moses is a picture of the Father smiting the Son. The rock releasing water that would satisfy these Israelites who deserve it not. Is a picture of salvation that's given to us. Whosoever will come can drink of the water of the cross and be satisfied forever, though we deserve it not. And then lastly, the rock had to be smitten or the rock was of no good to the Israelites. Now, why am I saying that as I close this message? Suppose Moses and the elders of Israel and the people would have came up to the rock and they said, my, oh, my, that is a beautiful rock. I, we've never seen any colors 
like that on that rock. It's a beautiful turquoise. It's, a, it's, it's got some blue and green hues in it. Wow, that is a pretty rock. That's all they did. Can I say to you, it would have been a waste of time. Suppose they came up to that rock and said, my oh my, that's a very impressive rock. We've never seen a rock shaped like that. We've never seen a rock in a formation like that. That, that rock is pretty impressive. But God didn't want a rock that was impressive. He didn't want a rock that was beautiful in color. He didn't want a rock that was durable. Come on, gang, look at that rock. I bet that rock's been here 50 billion years. Man, that's a hard rock. <laughs> but God didn't want them to look at the durability of the rock. He didn't want them to be impressed by the rock. He didn't want them to notice the color of the rock. He didn't even want them to see the pricelessness of the rock. Wow, that rock's got some gold in it. That, that rock's got some silver in it. That rock's worth a lot of money. It's priceless. Ladies and gentlemen, if all Moses would have done is looked at the color, looked at the arrangement, looked at the durability, looked at the value of that rock, and then walked away from it and never smote it, the children of Israel would have died in the desert. What Moses was told to do is not to be impressed by it, not to be enamored by it, not to be detoured by it. Take the rod and smite the rock. What is that saying to us? It's saying this, pay attention to me. You're not saved by the birth of Jesus. You might think it's a miraculous birth, and it was, but his birth doesn't save you. You're not saved by the life of Jesus. I don't care how honorable it was, how noble it was. His life cannot save you or me. You're not saved by the teaching of Jesus. He was the greatest teacher there has ever been. He taught truths that nobody had ever been taught before. As impressive as his teaching was, you're not saved nor am I by his teaching. We're not saved by his life. We're not saved by his birth. We're not saved by his miracles, no matter how priceless they are. What saves you and I from a devil's hell is the fact that God smote his son on a cross. And if Moses wouldn't have smote the rock, there'd been no water. And if God wouldn't have smote his son, there'd be no salvation. Do you understand? It's the cross that saves. Nothing else. That's why Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. With His stripes, the smitten stripes from the Father, we are healed of our sin. And Peter came back in the New Testament and said, Amen. He said in 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, in Himself He bore our own sins in His own body on that tree called the cross, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. 
Some well-meaning people think if we just live the Christian life around people, we can lead people to Jesus. No, we can't. We lead people to Jesus by taking them right there. And with our lips and with our testimony, we tell them that God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The rock. Heads are bowed, Mom.